You're listening to What's Contemporary Now, a show about culture, the people, places, and things that together make it up. Derek Blasberg is the man about town who seems to transcend any one role or project he's been associated with. When we asked our latest guest how he's managed to beat the system and achieve that level of autonomy, his answer was that he rarely ever said no. After getting fired from his job as an assistant at Vogue, he's gone on to achieve an ongoing and impressive list of accolades that have included all the big bucket subjects like fashion, art, culture, even tech. Today we get to hear his quippy and charming answers to several of our questions, along with more on the second part of his incredible undertaking with the centennial celebration of Richard Avedon and his work. This is Derek Plasberg, and we're talking about what's contemporary now. Derek Blasberg, your name obviously evokes thoughts of all of the fun extravaganza, front rows, red carpets, and everything that people wish they were invited to. But where does that beginning start? I feel like you played sports when you were a kid. Tell us everything. Is that really what that name conjures? Oh my God, what a treat. (laughs) I'm so flattered to hear that. But yes, to your point, for many years, that's not what (laughs) my name conjured. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. I lived a uniquely typical Midwestern childhood and upbringing. My parents moved into a house two months before I was born, and I lived in that house, in that bedroom, in that school district for the next 18 years. I went to the same high school. Fun fact, I had perfect attendance K through 12. Impressive. I didn't miss a single day of school, which was much more impressive, of course, pre-COVID, because obviously there was a couple days when I probably had a sniffle or cough and I went to school anyway. And now that is reckless. That is against the public health code. I was a bad citizen. But yeah, I was a studious student, an overachiever, super ambitious. I was a salutatorian of my high school class. And now I can look back on my childhood with that sort of sweet nostalgia that I think a lot of people have about where they grew up and how they grew up. At that time, I couldn't wait to get out and start my life and be where the action is. And that's how I got to New York City. Your mother was the managing editor of a medical journal. Was that sort of your first point of entry to being interested in writing? Or I tease my mom that the annals of thoracic surgery was the vogue of the cardiovascular community. But yeah, I remember growing up. I actually remember when I was very young and you would bring you know, fun things from around the house to show and tell. I brought a pacemaker to show and tell like in fourth grade. And I was often surrounded by that kind of weird ephemeral stuff, stuff I didn't really understand, but I knew was adjacent to the medical community. So my mom worked with Thomas B. Ferguson, who was, I'm told, this is a little out of my wheelhouse, I am told a pioneer of cardiovascular surgery and cardiovascular health. But I was surrounded by manuscripts. I remember the sound of, remember when printers, maybe you guys are too young and maybe the people that are listening to this are too young because I definitely feel like an elder in the fashion community now because I've been doing this stuff for over two decades. Printers used to have that very distinctive sign. It was like tape that would go, rear, rear, rear. And I remember that is the sound of my childhood, my mom printing off documents and texts for what would ultimately be published in the Annals of Thoracic Surgery, which was affiliated with Washington University, which is a very impressive medical school in Missouri where I grew up. Was that where you discovered your love for the written word or was that completely unrelated? Probably. Actually, no, probably not because Mm. that was definitely devoted to medical stuff. 
Of course. I actually think, and I don't know what kids do nowadays. I was a prolific note writer, note passer in school. And recently I found a giant shoebox of all the notes I wrote as a kid. And I think my my ability, but also my passion for writing, for expressing myself through the written word, looking back was probably from a very young and early age. I excelled in English classes. But when I got to New York, I didn't know that fashion was an industry. Oh, wow. Right? Okay. I didn't know that there was... When you grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and I was definitely pre-digital, my understanding of the fashion world was Abercrombie & Fitch at the mall. A lot of the brands that I now know and I work with, I was totally unaware of and totally ignorant to as a young person. I mean, I know Audrey Hepburn wore Uber de Givenchy as you know, a young woman in Sabrina, and I probably would have seen that midnight navy blue lingerie-inspired Dior dress that John Galliano made for Princess Diana. You know, I probably had access to that, but I had no idea that there was a multi-billion dollar industry of photographers, models, stylists, art directors, craft services. I had a fundamental lack of understanding or loose grasp of the fashion industry as I now know it today. Something I didn't even realize until actually preparing for this conversation was the fact that when you were in college, you actually were writing bios for models for a few different agencies. Was that kind of the first point of entry in terms of learning more about the industry as a whole? Or Yes. So on Labor Day weekend, my parents packed our Chevrolet with my worldly possessions and a couple of new things I bought at a back-to-school Bed Bath & Beyond sale. And packed up our car and we drove from St. Louis, Missouri to New York City to drop me off at New York University. And I had signed up to be a volunteer with what is, it's basically a Habitat for Humanity program in New York. And so I, I was able to get into the dorms early and unpack. And so the first few days I was in the dorm, the building was pretty empty. And then the woman who lived in the dorm room below me was a girl called Saskia she was from Maryland and she was a part-time model when she was in high school. And since we were the only two sort of in our dorms, we became friends. Again, being pre-digital, when you moved to New York, I didn't have a single friend. I didn't have a family member. I had a completely empty address book. You're so desperate to make connections and make friends. And I was so happy that there was this girl that was in the room below me. Of course, nowadays, I would have tweeted or posted <laughs> on Instagram, does anyone have any friends that are going to go to NYU in the fall? And I've you know, probably had made friends before I got to school, but I was, this was, I was before that. I predate all that stuff. Anyway, and so Saskia was my first friend. And through her, I met her agents. I met some photographers on shoots with her. And one night, I was with her and her agents, and they asked what I was studying at school. And I said I wanted to be a writer, and I was taking classes in literature and journalism. And they said, this is also a good example of what the modeling industry looked like before Instagram. Nowadays, you can really tell your own story as a model on your own platforms, right? So if you're a model who was discovered at a Six Flags in Eureka, Missouri, you can put that on your Instagram. And But in the early 2000s, of course, it was the agency that was not only booking your schedule, but really trying to advocate for you as a personality. So I met with a lot of the girls that were at her agency. She was at Elite at the time. Elite was on 22nd Street. And Missy Rader, Maggie Reiser, Giselle, a lot of the big girls of that era were there. 
And so my first job when I was still in school was writing their biographies. You know, Giselle was discovered at a McDonald's in Brazil. Maggie Reiser was from upstate New York. I guess that was my first exposure and introduction to this industry, but also how to talk and communicate with models and with photographers and agents. I've always been a natural extrovert. Mm -hmm. And that obviously helps when you're making new people, Mm -hmm. making new friends, excuse me. I also, you know, want to emphasize that I was so happy to be in New York. There was not a chip on my shoulder. There was 0% jadedness or bitterness. Um, I was so excited to wake up and be in New York City. I was still living in the dorm, by the way. I still had a meal plan. I was still (laughs) living in the school cafeteria. And so I sort of had this surreal life where I was a full-time student, but also I worked full-time at that agency. That started the summer after my freshman year of college. And then in September, I signed up for night classes and would work during the day. And I left early on Tuesdays and Thursdays because I had a 4.30 p.m. Spanish class. But the rest of my classes were after that, so I could do a full day at the agency. And obviously at night, go out and make friends or hang out with the girls. Or We also actually worked at W and, and Vogue during your college years, right? Staying on at Vogue after graduation. At that particular point in your life, what were you thinking was the end sort of goal or the dream job that you were gunning for? So I was an intern at W my junior year of college, and that was for college credit, mm-hmm. journalism majors. Maybe this is still the case. I don't know. But I believe it's probably still the case that journalism majors need some sort of work experience. Mm-hmm. And then when you're sort of revving up to graduate, I interned at Vogue for experience and hopefully just set up my postgraduate life. And for better or worse, I did. I took a lot of college level classes when I was in high school in Missouri. So I entered NYU with a, basically as a sophomore. So I graduated <laughs> in four years with two degrees, one in journalism and mass communication and one in dramatic literature. And then my first job out of college was working at Vogue. Is which was a total crash and burn. Yes, it's true. <laughs> yeah. I was the worst assistant in Vogue history. <laughs> what, what was the reason for your dismissal? I wish it would have been much more dramatic or cinematic. The job I had was working as the assistant to the managing editor, mm-hmm. which is obviously a very managerial role. And there was some writing opportunities. I wrote some contributors' notes. I actually wrote the captions for Melania Trump's wedding. She was on the cover. Mm-hmm. I think that must have been, what, February 2005? I think that was that issue, which was the first time there was a wedding dress on the cover of Vogue magazine. The irony being that those people would come in and haunt America and fashion years later. But that job, the captions and contributors' notes were such a small part of that job. And while I was ambitious and loved working with the fashion department and on shoots, the assistant to the managing editor really needed to be a much more focused person, which I was not. I am actually still friends with many of the people I met in that role. Mm-hmm. That was when I first met Lauren Santa Domingo, who was Lauren Davis at the time, Virginia Smith, Meredith Meinberg, who now does Laleen. That was still such an educational process 
an experience, even though that one specific role was probably not the best fit for me. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to call that failure, but obviously that is a little bit of a disruption to your trajectory at that particular oh, time. it was a failure. <laughs> <laughs> well, what were your primary takeaways? I mean, you were still so young, right? They say we don't lose, we learn. But do you recall what specifically you walked away having thought about differently as a result of being let go? And that one year as an assistant in the managing editor's office at Vogue, I learned more than I did in four years of journalism school. Just how magazines work, what deadlines look like, color correction, managerial schedules, budgets. And, and you're looking at it from the Mount Olympus of fashion publishing, mm-hmm. from the offices of Vogue. Failures are oftentimes much more educational and much more beneficial than successes. And I think this is one of those examples. Absolutely. Do you know your Myers-Briggs type? I don't know what a Myers-Briggs is. Really? You've never done that test? It's actually quite informative. I mean, you already know you're an extrovert, so that's sort of half the battle, but it's a test. What, are, that a lot what is of, your type, Christopher? I'm surprisingly an introvert, which I would have never guessed, but I suppose it makes sense in certain ways. Not extremely. I think I'm only 56% introverted, but I'm an INFJ, which is known as the advocate. You should definitely do it. They're interesting Kind of you got to take a whole test to find out if you're an introvert or not. <laughs> it's much more elaborate than that. I think for me, the biggest takeaway was that just because historically I thought I was extroverted, but you know, the things you live and learn and you've held roles and or contributed to W Vogue style.com interview, Harper's Bazaar, Vanity Fair, V, V Man, Garage, CNN, YouTube, the Ocean. I'm pretty sure there's something I'm forgetting. You were also a New York Times bestselling author and continue to be a front row favorite, but what sort of box, if one was obligated to, would you put yourself in? Is there one label that kind of sums it up and says it all? I identify as a writer. And uh-huh. even though I've had other gigs in my career, uh-huh. the ability to express myself or explain theories and concepts or trends with the written word, I think has been the secret to my success, if you even want to call it uh, a success. And I went to school to be a writer, and I guess that's how I would call myself. That's fair. It's tricky, of course, because when I graduated college almost 20 years ago, oh my gosh, this is my 20-year reunion. I wonder if I'll I'll get invited. Anyway, this is I graduated 20 years ago this year, and the world is much different now when it comes to being a writer or working in magazines. Mm -hmm. And so even though I identify as a writer, the role of a writer or journalist has changed so drastically. Of course. Articles are shorter. Magazines have fewer pages. But the ability to say what you need to say in the written word or express yourself through words, I think is still as important as ever. When I worked at CNN, we obviously wrote a script. When I worked at YouTube, a lot of the creators that we worked with, the most successful ones often would draft their videos. Although the idea of a writer and the power of a traditional writer has changed so drastically, even in the two decades since I graduated college, the ability to express yourself in the written word is still as important, I think, as ever. Of course, you can't really avoid it in any of those processes and several others. Mal Lautenberg recently told us he doesn't think people generally read anymore, but you're giving really good examples of video formats such as YouTube and obviously something like CNN. Do you think that there's some type of an obligation to iterate or change the medium used in order to succeed and occupy those spaces? What did Mel say? 
Mel actually said that he doesn't think people read anymore. But you just gave really good examples of the way writing still applies to even things like video mediums, right? So do you think that writers or creators or people in future generations who are moving into these types of spaces are newly obligated to be front of camera or more telegenic or work with different things? Or do you feel like the written word will sustain its kind of role in the general marketplace? Honestly, I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I can I tell you something? One of my New Year's resolutions was to say, I don't know more often. And that's because I think we live in this weird world where everyone has to have an opinion on everything all the time. And if you're talking about reading, and if we look back at 2023, which had some incredibly successful celebrity memoirs like Barbara Streisand and Prince Harry and Britney Spears, a lot of those books, their sales were amplified by the audio versions. Mm-hmm. Barbara reading her own book, Michelle Williams reading Britney's book, and I think Prince Harry read his own book. People may not be reading to uh, that point. But we're definitely still consuming content and we're still curious what people have to say and what they have to write. To answer your question, I would like to think that the written word is still as important as it always was. But definitely, I can't be so ignorant or clueless to say that people are reading books or magazines in the same way that they have in generations past. Do you listen to books more than you read them, or do you do both? I was not into any form of audio content consumption, including your podcast, I'm sorry to say, Christopher, until the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I was a snob or if I was elitist or if I was a traditionalist, but I didn't listen to podcasts, and I Mm -hmm. rarely, if ever, listened to a book on tape Mm -hmm. until 2020. I would go on long walks and hikes just to get out of my house. And I got so sick of listening to my same top 40 pop music playlist that I said, well, you know what? Let's give it a twirl. Uh, and that's when I discovered Kara Switcher. That's when I discovered Smartless. That's when I discovered your podcast. And now I'm a pretty robust consumer. But typically when I'm on the go, over the holidays, I did actually listen to a lot of Barbara Streisand memoir as an audio experience. I actually posted her book on Instagram And I was so excited to dive in. And then a lot of my friends commented, listen to it on tape because she sings. And I was like, oh, of course, you're right. And I do think it's actually a better experience to consume her book specifically as an audio experience because she does sing. Where there's definitely other books that I prefer to sit down on a couch and read. Call me old fashioned. Well, what about yourself? You are a New York Times bestselling author with Classy and had written the second book as well. Is that something that we can all anticipate seeing in your future? I hope so. I think Classy and Very Classy came out maybe 09 and 10 or 10 Mm -hmm. and 11, Mm -hmm. a long time ago. And then I think in 15 or 16, I wrote a book devoted to Harper's Bazaar's models. So the true Mm -hmm. stories behind the faces that were in Harper's Bazaar magazine over the years, which was a super fascinating subject to dive into. Before the supermodels, there was a lot of women who became incredibly successful models. But when they fell off the pages of Bazaar, fell into meager and sometimes very sad circumstances. The best example is Dovima. Mm-hmm. So many people, especially in the fashion world, know that name Dovima because she was a featured model in Richard Abaddon's 
portrait of her in front of some elephants wearing a dewer dress, which currently holds the record for most expensive fashion photograph in history. And Dovima, although she was a longtime muse of Abaddon and is in many of the most iconic fashion pictures from the middle of the 20th century, when the 60s rolled around and, and Twiggy and other girls came into fashion, she married an abusive guy that beat her up. So she left him and she married another guy. And she ended up working at a Two Boots pizza parlor in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, completely forgotten. There's other stories in that book that are a little bit more optimistic. But um, I definitely still like doing that kind of work, researching those kind of stories and mm-hmm. putting those words on a page. And last year, we did this Abaddon Centennial Celebration, and I worked on the catalog that corresponded to that exhibition. And between us and anyone who's listening, that catalog has sold out, and so we're looking into a second printing. So I'm still able to flex a lot of my literary muscles, even though I am not a traditional writer, or at least not a writer in the way that I thought I would have been when I was in journalism school. That's also something that I find Is that even a question? Or am I just rambling on and on, Christopher? <laughs> no, I think it was definitely... Anyway, sorry, go ahead. It was an impressive and organic segue, but it does flag something that I wanted to talk about with you, which is that you seem to transcend the system by which we form our identities, right? I mean, typically people are associated with the post they hold and where they hold it, and that's how we understand them. But I don't think people look at Derek Blasberg and think, oh, that's Derek Blasberg from the Gagosian or that's Derek Blasberg from Vanity Fair or YouTube or Bazaar or Vogue or whichever different reference one wants to pull. It's just this sort of sense that there's Derek Blasberg being the kind of man about town that he is. And I think there is an entire generation coming up in the workforce today who can't necessarily envision themselves at the mercy of socially acceptable programming around what work looks like and how one builds out their professional career and ultimately their life. So you might not even be able to answer it given that you are sort of the man in the painting himself, but how did you go about having such freedom in the way you navigate this industry and the kind of independence you have outside of any one collaborator that you're working with at any given time? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I could be honest and say that there was some sort of strategic plan or, Mm -hmm. or I had a career advisor who sat down and outlined some of my goals. Mm -hmm. And that's just not the case. And beyond even my career in this business, if you look at just the workforce at large, Mm -hmm. there are now directors of social engagement at fashion brands. There are uh, influencer relations. There's jobs that did not exist even Mm -hmm. as five years ago, 10 years ago, two decades ago. And so I guess if I were to look back at my own career, it's to always be open-minded and optimistic. And I remember over the years, people have asked me what it was like when I got started. And what I always tell them is that I never said no. I was writing press releases for jewelry brands when I was an intern at W Magazine and someone asked me, do you want to come early and help unpack some trunks? I said, yes. And I really think that sort of can do it, will do it, happy to do it perspective is what prepared me for a job and career that is not what we would call typical, which isn't to say that there are not other jobs that are more traditional. A lot of the magazines and newspapers that I work with still employ full-time copy editors and fact checkers, and those sorts of roles are incredibly important. And 
make copy even better. So I think if people excel in more rigid professional circumstances, it's great that those jobs exist and that there are people like me who are, to use a word you used earlier, more extroverted. It's great that there's roles for them too. We're touching upon some of the changes that you've witnessed in the industry from the time you started from how magazines are run or relationship to the written word or what work can look like, but you're also a big trader of culture as a whole. So what ways do you find cultures kind of changed or iterated significantly during the time that you've been in? That's a huge question. Every way. Mm -hmm. It's changed in every way. If we look just, if we don't even look in other industries like art or beauty, which in a lot of ways is separate than fashion, if we just look at fashion, there was a time when fashion shows were limited just to the people who were in a room. And now when people are organizing a fashion show, they think what it looks like on a live stream. When you're looking at retailers, for a long time, fashion was only sold with department stores or in their own brick and mortar stores. Now we have online marketplaces. We have resale marketplaces. The whole world, this whole culture, this whole industry is completely different than when I started. You clearly I love- wish I had a more concise answer with some good examples, but sadly, Christopher, <laughs> I am overwhelmed by how many changes there have been. So it's hard to choose just a couple. No, it's true. I mean, it's a big ask, but you're also- Or if you look at photography before, when you shot a campaign, a photographer would submit 10 or 12 polished images to the client. And now you have 10 or 12 polished images, but you also need video. You need a behind the scenes interview. It's all, it's different. There's more and you need the most. Yeah, it's definitely a, a matter of more, that's for sure. And you're clearly a lover of beautiful people, places, and things. But what gets you the most excited? I mean, you always seem to be the kind of jovial presence in a room. But what about all of these spaces we're talking about today? Do you find the most inspiring or engaging? Or Isn't everyone a fan of beautiful places? Who loves ugly places, Christopher? <laughs> Agreed. First of all, the everything that you just defined about my work and my life is incredibly complimentative. And I thank you. And I appreciate that. And I am very aware of how lucky and blessed and fortunate I am. Mm -hmm. And to your point, the teenager from St. Louis, Missouri, who got here is still very much alive and in my mind and in my heart. And I still get excited when the lights go down at a fashion show, when everyone's buzzing about a new model. Mm -hmm. I am still in it because I'm still inspired by it. So it's not even that I'm looking for the next, the new, I am super excited for where I am now. And maybe one day if I do feel like there's a element of taking it for granted or bitterness or jadedness, or if the day comes when I'm not super excited to be at a show when the lights go down or to celebrate a new designer, Maybe that's when I sort of step away and look for something else to do. Mm -hmm. I'm excited to talk to you today because I think this interview will come out the week that part two of our centennial celebration of Richard Avedon opens in Paris. And Richard Avedon was probably the first name I ever knew in photography. Mm -hmm. I was a fan of his in St. Louis, Missouri. I remember in 2000 and 
One, when his Met show opened, I was there. I remember in 2002, I went to a New Yorker talk when he was interviewed by Adam Gopnik. And the fact that I am now, 20 years later, working with the Avedon Foundation and Richard Avedon's son on all these projects is a career highlight, but it's also a full circle moment where I am working with and collaborating with my childhood hero. It's incredible. I'm feeling very blessed and very fortunate that this has come together like it has. Well, it's certainly a life where dreams come true. So let's get a little bit more into detail about that adventure. Obviously, you touched upon kind of part one earlier and the fact that that portion was sold out. But what can we hear about what's going on today? So in Paris, the focus of the show will be on icons. Mm -hmm. Richard Abaddon shot some of the most famous faces of the 20th century. This morning, I was at the Richard Abaddon Foundation in New York, which is in Hell's Kitchen. And the foundation has saved all of his date books. And in March of 1963, which was the period we were looking at today, in a single week, Abaddon shot Martin Luther King with his father and his son, which is a picture called The Three Kings, Chubby Checker, Malcolm X, and he also flew down Atlanta, Georgia to shoot William Cosby, which is a picture that is sometimes referred to as the last slave because in the Associated Press, Abaddon read about someone who was born before slavery was made illegal. He was over 100 years old and he shot him in the 1960s. Like, how, how incredible. That was this guy's week. That was just a week. So this show in Paris will feature a lot of icons like that in an exhibition that will open in the Gagosian space on the Bruda Pontu. And one of the, the focal images is a mural that Abaddon printed of Marilyn Monroe. Can you get more iconic than Marilyn Monroe? And that picture will be- By Richard uh, Abaddon. In incredible. I know it's super, I don't know how granular and specific you have time for me to get in this interview, but the pictures that are in that mural were shot on the same shoot at the same time as the portrait we know as Sad Marilyn, which is mm -hmm. a sort of downcast Marilyn looking down. And what's also about that mural is that you see the full range of Marilyn Monroe's psyche, but also how perhaps in Sad Marilyn, we see the true melancholy of Marilyn the person. But when Avedon asked her to turn it on for the camera, the professional came alive and she could be the most boisterous, sexy, over-the-top and glamorous icon that there ever was. And across from that picture, we're hanging Dovima and the Elephants, which, as I mentioned, is the most celebrated fashion photograph of all time. So I'm excited about this show. I'm excited to be a part of it. He's an arguably the most celebrated fashion photographer that obviously had incredible touch points in the larger culture as a whole. So you have a history with the Gagosian. I think that dates back since, what, like 2014 already. But what was the genesis of your role in this particular project? For this show or my role yeah. in Gagosian in general? No, for this show, this whole Richard Avedon extravaganza that you've been wrapped up in. How did that start? <laughs> um, and I hope there's many more extravaganzas. That yeah. started a couple of years ago. So the Gagosian Gallery, which I've worked at for a decade, is the official gallery of record for the Richard Avedon Foundation. And obviously they knew that his what would have been his 100th birthday was coming up in 2023. Mm -hmm. So they were working on different concepts and ideas to celebrate that. And the idea that we settled on in May, which was we asked 
several people who knew Abaddon or had been inspired by Abaddon or had worked with Abaddon to choose a single image from his entire body of work and explain why they thought that was a specific example of his enduring genius. The foundation, I think, was happy to collaborate with me because I encouraged them to open it up to beyond people that just knew Abaddon personally, to ask actors and actresses and other people of note how they had been inspired by Abaddon, even though some of them were born much even after Abaddon had risen to his heights. And what's interesting about that specific show is that when we came up with that concept, many of us thought that this would be an incredible way to show a new side of Abaddon, the photographer that we hadn't necessarily seen before. But what was also important was how it showed a new side of a lot of the subjects. Mm-hmm. So some models obviously chose pictures of themselves, but other models like Christy Turlington chose photographs of other people. Christy specifically chose Florence Kennedy, an early black abortion rights activist. We were going back and forth on who her selection would be. And then Rover Wade was repealed. And she said, I definitely want Florence Kennedy. And obviously Abaddon shot Christy often, which that example shows that Abaddon was intrigued and interested and inspired by pioneers of civil rights and social justice movements, but so was Christy. I was impressed at how many people chose images from Abaddon's in the American West series. So Mucha Prada, Raph Simmons, Edward Enenful, Chloe Seveny, Mila Jovovich, all of these people had been inspired over the years by this single body of work, which uh-uh. of course, in hindsight, was a pioneering piece of reportage portrait photography and asserted contemporary photography as a real art medium. So that was an incredible project to work on. I also feel like that particular series and book has come up over and over again in each new generation in terms of references. It in the American to, West? Mm-hmm, yes. Fun fact, Laura Wilson worked on that, who was Owen and Luke Wilson's mother. And okay. a lot of these source pieces especially the pictures of Avedon at work were shot by Laura Wilson. Fun fact, I know, Christopher. And for those who can't get to Paris for this particular show, is there any level of access that people can look forward to having online? That's a great question. Mm -hmm. And yes, I hope we roll out a lot of special features on the website and it will be on obviously our Gagosian social, definitely Derek Blasberg social. I'm so excited about this. (laughs) And, you know, Dior is going to collaborate with us on the opening And of course, Richard Abaddon's foundation has their own social stuff. And hopefully we'll get a lot of buzz around it. I have to say that the opening of that show last May sort of surprised me. On opening night, we had a line around the block to see the show. And I think it's just a testament to how important Abaddon's body of work remains in pop culture. Abaddon was such a pioneer of women of color in the fashion space, a civil rights pioneer. Gina Machado was the first Asian woman featured in Harper's Bazaar magazine. And the only reason she was featured was because he threatened not to re-sign his contract if they didn't run a picture of her. It's that famous picture of her smoking the cigarette. Mm -hmm. So this guy was, was a legend, and I'm just happy to be sort of amplifying all these incredible ideals that he established 50, 60, 70 years ago. Yeah, he's definitely a timeless figure that continues to reverberate through the culture. And it sounds like an incredible. He was incredibly... only 21 when he shot for Harper's Bazaar. 
Oh, I mean, wow. What were you doing when you were 21, Christopher? Definitely not shooting for Harper's Bazaar. <laughs> <laughs> we, we can't have this opportunity to get you on for an episode without picking your brain on this obvious question that we have to ask all of our guests, which is what is contemporary now? What's contemporary now has probably been what's always been contemporary for me, and that's being up for anything, open to change and new challenges. When I lived in Missouri, I didn't even know that this fashion industry existed. And 20 years ago when I was in college, I thought I was going to work in magazines for my entire career. I never thought I'd have a show on CNN or work for a giant tech corporation like YouTube and Google. I definitely never thought I'd work with the Richard Avedon Foundation. But I'm grateful that all these things happened, all these opportunities crossed my path. So I think the trick is always being up for that change, for something new. I mean, I've been intimidated. I've definitely been scared. Absolutely. But when you think about what's contemporary, it's about leading into those scary moments and trying to make the most of them. Never say no. I think that's beautiful advice and definitely important. So thank you for your time. Thank you for the conversation and congrats on everything. I'm excited to see this part two. Thank you, Christopher. Thanks for your time today. Thanks for listening to this episode of What's Contemporary Now. A special thanks to our show's producer, Cheyenne Asadi, who makes it all possible. Original theme music by Joseph Top Miller and Chase Coughlin of The Black Soft. And visual design by Aaron Marr and Graham Prentice. Subscribe now to be the first to hear new episodes. And for more content, follow us on Instagram at What's Contemporary or visit us online at whatscontemporary.com.